Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with International Justice Mission. Thank you to Philip Calvert and his team for the incredible work they're doing. You may be asking yourself why. Why is Collisions YYC partnering with IJM? Well, because I believe we can end slavery in our lifetime, and I want to use my platform to be part of that mission. For many of you, hearing that statement may be a rallying cry. For the rest of you, it may be a moment of, wait, what? Slavery? Is that even a thing I should be worrying about? For me, up to six months ago, it was the second. I did not even understand the problem. After a chance meeting with Philip Calvert, National Director of Development for IGM Canada, my eyes were open to the reality that poor people face the world over, a reality of violence that stops them from ever moving forward in their life. At first, this made me uncomfortable. Then it made me downright mad. And then it gave me hope. It is the support of groups like IGM that will allow us to reach the goal of ending slavery in our lifetime and give hope to people who may have none. This is not a conversation that we want to have. It's a conversation that we must have. Please join me in supporting this incredible organization by visiting and donating to their cause at www.igm.ca. This is a fight we all need to take on, and we need to take it on today. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to Mr. John McGinnis. Sorry, John. Well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. We're just, I'm very good. We're just joking. Good old Calgary conspires. So you think you and I met, I don't know what, 10, 12, I, 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 a while back. I've completely lost track of time thanks to COVID or maybe my age. I'm not sure, but uh, I don't know. You and I met way back, probably early 2000s, probably mid 2000s. Definitely was early 2000s. Yeah. We were in a, an accelerator group together. Yes. EO accelerator. That was uh, uh Absolutely. I, I, again, with so many things we can talk about, but you've been, you've been a busy guy uh, since that period of time from, uh, I think you were running your main business at that time was Print Audit, which you've now sold, which we're going to talk about today. And we're also going to introduce the world uh, through my audience anyways, to your new company. You're the founder at Earthware, which um, I love you. I'm just going to live tasty without the wasty. We're just going to leave the, ha- the tagline hang there for a little bit <laughs> and let people process that. But um, John, you're an entrepreneur, you're a director, you're an advisor. You've been big part of the entrepreneurial and the business community in Calgary. So, so many things we can chat about today. So maybe let's start, you're a founder, you've got a new company on the works. Let's talk about that a little bit. And then let's peel back the layers and talk about your recent exit, which was 2018, which is an elusive, you know, making it over the wall kind of story for so many business owners. And, you know, when you read the stats about how many people can successfully exit and sell an organization, it's scary how low it is because we always hear the shiny stories. So I really love to get a little bit of your journey on that, but, uh, tell us about Earthware and we'll, uh, work backwards. Sure. Um, yeah, so Earthware, it's a reusable container service for restaurant takeout and delivery, which is kind of a mouthful, but, uh, that's the elevator pitch. What we do is we, um, The goal is to reduce the amount of single-use packaging being used at restaurants. And if you're anything like me, uh, we order a lot at our house and we get, uh, we love the food that comes in, but we really hate all the waste. Pretty good knowledge that most of that stuff doesn't get recycled. None of it gets really composted. And um, we we ran into this idea down in San Francisco uh, of a service where um, you can have a Uh, your food gets delivered or you can pick up your food from restaurants and reusable containers and then drop off those containers or we'll come and pick them up. We wash them, uh, sanitize them, take back to the restaurants. And really the goal is to reduce single-use containers by 
millions and millions of uh, pounds and containers over the next few years. Just started in Calgary in November and it's going pretty well so far. We've got about 15, 16 restaurants on and we're going to have another five, six join in the next few days. So pretty excited about it. Is this, and I gotta be blunt, is, this feels like one of those, like, really? Somebody isn't already doing this? This isn't already happening? Because it makes one of those beautiful ideas that makes so much sense with the way you, I'm like, well, yeah, why wouldn't we be doing that? But clearly we're not. But I know you and I chatted offline. This is something that's happened in other parts. This has happened in other parts of the world. But how, you know, where are we in the life cycle of this idea that quote unquote, as a consumer seems like, well, yeah, no kidding. Why aren't we doing this? Yeah, it's a great question. And the answer is, don't know why Calgary hasn't done it before, but I'm glad they haven't because mm. I get to do it. Uh, <laughs> Spoken like a true entrepreneur, <laughs> touche. <laughs> um, yeah, the idea isn't new. I mean, really, if uh, if you're familiar or if you've heard of the Tiffin system in India, it's probably the most famous. Mm. They, they deliver somewhere around a billion meals a day uh, in reusable containers, and it's been going on for Tens. Like, well, you just you just push me you push me back in my chair. Yeah, uh, it's been going on for a tens billion of meals years. a day. That's been going on forever. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. been going on for tens of years. I'm not sure exactly how long, but uh, past that, there's probably 20 cities around the world that we know of that have these programs. Mostly larger cities. Uh, San Francisco is a fairly famous one, but you know, all through the U.S. And there are a few pretty new startups in different parts of Canada doing this. So it just seems to be taking hold. Right Right now, um, we're looking at uh, Calgary, Edmonton right away. We started in Calgary, uh, but you're right. It isn't a new idea. Why it hasn't been started here before, I have no idea, but I'm pretty excited that it hasn't because it's given us uh, first mover advantage. And we're lucky that I grew up here and Calgary's a great place. So I've got a lot of, we've got a lot of connections and it really has hit. Um, well, here's something you probably don't know. Alberta is the number one bottle recycling place in the entire world. And, uh, so in the entire, no, I did not know yeah. that. I knew we were, I knew that that was a thing here. Yeah. I didn't know the entire world. Comment. Yeah. By, uh, by quite a bit. And so, um, so when he, a lot of people look at hmm. Alberta and Calgary and think, oh, those guys aren't going to do that. That's, uh, anti, anti what they're all about. It's a, uh, it's redneck, but we are definitely not that way. Uh, everybody in Calgary, even our recycling program and our compost program is super successful. So this is actually a really good fertile place to get started. It's so interesting you say that as a complete sidebar. Before the recent municipal election, I had Janet Brown on for an interview and she talked about the image of Alberta as being this right wing redneck place. But she goes, when you when you do polls and you get out there, she goes, we are the proverbial middle. Like she goes, Alberta is so much more in the middle of those two, two factions than what we think or that vision, kind of that comment you just said, like, oh, that would never happen in Alberta. She's like, yeah, everyone thinks that. But when you get down to it and you talk to people, we're way more in the middle of things than this extreme version that I think is maybe our brand in correctly or correctly so, but that's another, that's another conversation for another podcast. But she goes, it's kind of like the middle finger middle. You're, we're kind of saying F you to both sides. Sometimes I thought it was an era that felt more Alberta to me. That, that resonated with me. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, it's an entrepreneurial cowboy spirit, but I think the, uh, cowboy spirit is definitely a middle piece. Uh, I think that mm -hmm. there, uh, we don't let people force us either way and we'll do what's right. So that, yeah, see there now, now my, my shoulders roll back and I feel good with, I feel good about that. A little bit, Alberta pride on that one. 
the Tiffin system, I think I got, I think the first time I got introduced, that was Mango Shiva, which is no longer there. It was a restaurant on Stephen Avenue, but they had, they were like a metal container, like an aluminum or they were, they were much more substantial. So we're going way down the rabbit hole here before we back out of it. But are yours, I'm assuming yours are not that, is this more in the Tupperware? I'm just looking for things I can relate to more in the Tupperware category as far as a reusable. Like when I get it, do I feel like I'm getting something pretty substantial? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Fortunately or unfortunately, the number one comment I get when I show people the containers is, I'd steal that. <laughs> so they are. Which has been part of your business model, though, right? It's part of the, the pivot you uh, have to make. The containers are quite beautiful. A backhanded compliment yeah, right there. Exactly. <laughs> uh, the containers are quite beautiful. They're, uh, we've got seven different types, but they really are quite substantial. And um, uh, they're, they're made to last up to a thousand washes. And uh, so it, it's a true reusable system. How long would that last? Like, so based on kind of your projections, how long would a would a would a piece stay in circulation? Based because I don't what, what I don't know what a thousand washes means. Yeah, so that that generally means about a thousand orders. And so right now, uh, because we've just gotten started, as far as I could tell, that'd be the next twenty years. But we're hoping uh, as we get bigger, okay. as we get bigger, <laughs> so and better, okay. early, early days, yeah, early days, as we yeah, get yeah, bigger okay. and better, it'll probably be you know it'll be a few months to a year. Uh, the use of a container, we're going to be really, really, our, our, uh, financials are not based on the length of the, of the life of the container. It's on, uh, they're really based off of how many times we can do the pickups and things like that. Uh, so we're going to be kind of brutal on how, um, on how they look and, and how they survive. So even though they're rated to a thousand other companies like ours around the world that we've spoken to that are doing this, it probably going to last about five, six, 700 times, um, which is still an enormous amount. Uh, but once we take them out of, um, out of circulation, we've got a partner that is, uh, going to recycle them hundred percent guaranteed recycle, and they're going to turn them into brooms for us, which is kind of cool. And you can go drop off the brack. Yeah, I, I see a pro- my marketing hat just went on. But let's be clear, you're comparing five, six hundred against one. Like the use case now is one. Yeah. <laughs> so you're exponentially in terms of, oh, so, okay, interesting. Okay, I got to ask because you touched on it. As a business owner, as an entrepreneur, how do you solve the problem of people stealing them because they like them so much? Like <laughs> I'm thinking about my Tupperware club right now. And do I have any? And I think I have a couple that were really good quality that I got somewhere that I use for dog, I use for different things. But you're right. They they didn't get put back into circulation. They got put in my Tupperware drawer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, great question. And um, uh, as an entrepreneur, I tend to learn things the hard way. So, uh, or just as <laughs> yes. John, I guess I tend to learn things the hard way. So before we started in November, um, before we launched fully, we had a pilot period and the pilot period, uh, we sent out about a thousand of these containers in three different business models. One, every meal had was these containers and the customers didn't ask for them. They just received them. Uh, the other two, they'd ask for them pay or they'd ask for them and not pay. So we tried these business models and uh, all of them worked out really nicely, except for the one thing, they never came back. So we had a uh, thousand go out, 280 came back. So I got on the phone as I do, and I called all these other companies around the world that are doing this, trying to, <laughs> trying to do their part to save the earth a little bit. And they said, yeah, you have to have a membership program. Otherwise they don't come back. So we've launched as a membership program and now we can, now we can track them. So there's a new 
there's a new piece to it that you have, you sign up on our website as a member and we give you a code and then you just put that code into the delivery apps uh, like DoorDash or Skip or any of them or you put the code or if you're uh, doing takeout, you just tell the restaurant and that way we've got a pretty good idea that you have them. Um, yeah, but, uh, so, but the idea really is to get them back and we didn't get a lot of them back. So trying something new. You made them too. Yeah. You made them too pretty and too useful. So this is an interesting, I don't know if this is my pivot point here, but print audit, a company that you ran and been chief executive officer for 20 years, uh, talking about that. But when I hear you thinking about membership, like this organization, not sure what your long-term goals are as an entrepreneur, I'm sure it's build and sell somewhere along the way. That's an interesting value proposition you're building for the company to now have a quote unquote membership model yeah. to really have something to now was when you went into it, when you were thinking about, you know, as any entrepreneur, were you thinking about the exit or thinking about, Hey, where could I take this? Was this more of a passion project after exiting from print audit? And did you land on that, on that metric? Cause that feels like a success metric that's going to exponentially make it easy to show the value of this new company versus not having a membership base. Yeah. Um, I try to start companies with the goal in mind. And so when I was a kid, I, I, uh, I think maybe being an entrepreneur started early with, I used to call it cheating, cheating on the maze where everybody else would start the maze at the front and I'd start it at the back and work my way backwards and get it every time. So anyway, it's a, a bit of cheating on the maze. So <laughs> it is having the goal in mind is important. And we have for earthware, we've really got three paths uh, that we're looking at as the goal, so um, it, it, which seems crazy, but uh, eventually one of those paths will come out. The first one is um, uh, getting bought out, like you said, um, which is is very likely to happen. A lot of Canadian companies they do get bought out as we make this more successful. Probably a manufacturer of the containers or somebody else will come along and, and take it out if we're successful with it. Because as you've got a large membership, there's some value in membership, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. But we always go back to what the why of the company is, and it's to re remove single-use containers from, from circulation as best we can and get reusable mm -hmm. going. And so the nice thing about where we are now is uh, – is that we can be choosy. Uh, the other two options are franchise. And so build up the systems and the best expansion for this might be franchise. Even though I've said it's in about 20, 30 cities, there's hundreds and hundreds of cities that can use this. Um, and the, the last that we're actually looking at is making this a uh, charitable company or a nonprofit company and, um, and, oh, and building okay. it that way, which we haven't done before. And so you know, those, all those three paths are kind of the goal right now. Uh, and, but none of them stop us from continuing on the mission of removing single use containers from circulation. Oh, well, from landfills going into I, landfills. Which I appreciate the, the wise, again, that's so obvious. You say it, I'm like, well, yeah, no, like no shit that we need that. And why isn't it, why isn't it there? And why isn't it happening? Um, as an entrepreneur, as an advisor, as you know, being in the role that I know you've you've been in terms of contributing to the community, if you're sitting down with a founder and they're at that early stage, they're, literally they're running alongside where you're at. Is there a risk of focusing too much on the end of going, you know, it's all about being selling out, selling out versus losing sight of like, again, I, I know it's a weird question because there's every answer could be correct depending on the situation. But if you're looking at it, thinking back to your exit, obviously you were with print audit for 20 years. Again, I'm a professional creeper here on your LinkedIn, 20 years and two months specifically, it says, you know, 
I'm assuming there was lots of phases of like, yeah, there's always an end in mind, but again, losing sight of one to trip over the other thoughts on that advice, kind of on, on your journey of like where you prioritize what, depending on where you are in your, in your, in your building phase, building the company. Yeah. It's a, I think the question, what's interesting about that. And people ask me this all the time is, does that goal get in the way? And it's not, it's, it's, it's not really about the sell. Though it is, I mean, everybody, everybody that grows a company, they've got some sort of end, either they're going to, uh, they want to pass it on to their kids or they want to sell it in some way, shape or form. So it's going to, it's either going to be multi-generational or they're going to sell it. That's their goal, whether it happens or not. Um, I guess we'll get into that in a few minutes, but thinking of your company as something that you want to sell really actually helps to think about what others would be looking at in your company anyway. And so putting in the governance early, putting in the systems, making the company so that it really does run without you should always be the goal. And once you get to that goal, your company is kind of ready to either continue on as something new or different acquisitions or sell. You you buy and make it bigger, you sell stuff. Um, so it's it's less about the selling and more about the mindset of selling and building up a company that people would be interested in. So having the, the, like I said, the right corporate governance, thinking about a board, thinking about your systems, not rating the company all the time with your own personal expenses, that kind of stuff. <laughs> the old li- the lifestyle company. Absolutely. Well, yes. yeah. And, and if you have that, at least being very clear what those are, because when you actually sell the company, you take out your own expenses. You got to factor that, yeah. factor that back. And there's a, and then the valuation goes up for your company. So, or your return. So goes I really up. like what you said about, you know, does it get in the way? Well, yes and no, but it actually provides the right motivation or the right direction. Cause like you said, everything you're going to need to sell a company is also what you need to make a company more successful and more autonomous and more getting out of your way as the leader slash founder. Yeah. The, this, the, the white knight syndrome, you don't have to write in every time to save the day. Yeah. <laughs> and that's actually one of the things that I learned and I help out a ton of companies is the, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, it is very tough for them to go from white knight to, uh, really an investor. And, uh, and sometimes people, and I've done it myself, they blow things up because they don't feel like they're as important in their company as they were. But when you feel like you're not as important, it's actually means that things are working out well. I really like the, I like those two paradigms you just put is the white knight, which I think we can all picture the, anyone who's a business owner has wrote in to save the day and maybe wrote over a few people in the process. Let's be honest, but I love it. You compared it to investor. You didn't say Passover. You didn't say like manager. You said investor. That's an interesting for you, even with like thinking back to print audit and maybe tell, tell that story a little bit. Like how many times did that happen? And did you get back on the horse, got off the horse, got back on it? 20 years is, is, is a bunch of lifetimes for, for a lot of things in there. I'm assuming through the cycling of the business, there was investor moments as well as white night moments. And did they kind of cycle back and forth with each other over the years? Yeah, there's, there's no doubt that, um, that you get pulled back in. And, uh, and, and often it's for very important things. So you get pulled back in and, uh, uh, but eventually your job as a CEO becomes, uh, in, in my opinion, it's, uh, it, it becomes, you're in charge of the people and the people is actually my favorite part of running a company. And a lot of people don't feel the same way. I know that, but that is my absolute feeling. And it's, (laughs) and that's, that would be the thing that I'm, uh, 
that I'm most passionate about are the people that are inside. And I love that. So it's running the people in the culture and making sure the culture is, uh, survives. And then, yeah, you get pulled into emergencies and problems. And sometimes you do come in and you're the white knight, but more often than not, if you've got a great team and, uh, they're used to being autonomous then they'll come up with the ideas way before you do. Hmm. You touched on the word culture. I was having a chat with, um, uh, Jeff Adamson from Skip, yeah. which is probably really re- relevant to your world and probably facilitates part of why your world can exist the way it does is because they did what they did. Yeah. And he said, yeah, you know, Neo, we're at about 500 people. And I wouldn't really say we have a culture yet. We're still working on it. We're still letting it find its path. And I, I, I kind of took that for a minute of like, hmm, we're at 500 people. We're growing. We did, you know, massive series B re- recently, I believe, uh, 64 million, uh, hundred million total raise. And like, yeah, you know, we haven't really figured out culture yet. We're still, we're still working on it. I've been processing that a little bit clearly since he said it to me a couple of weeks ago. So for, you know, maybe how big is, uh, and again, big is a weird question to ask. What's your head count right now in terms back to the people? How many people are at, uh, at Earthware right now? there's six of us right now. Nice. So when you think about culture and think about that evolution of it and you know, how much do you like, do you define it versus you let the culture kind of find its path with some of your guidance? Like it's a big question. It's elusive. It's as, but as subjective and, and qualitative and quantitative as you can get the word culture. What's your view on that? And, you know, not to compare with Jeff's comment, but it's been resonating with me. I've got 500 people and we still haven't figured out the culture yet. That was an interesting comment. I'm still trying to process. Yeah. Um, so different types of companies, I guess the, the Neo and the earthware, but, um, uh, yeah. I'm, so I, I actually believe that culture is based off of the rhythms of the company. And so the rhythms are the meetings that you have, the, uh, the cadence of how you celebrate your successes, how you deal with things. And, um, uh, in fact, I've, I've often thought if I ever write a book, it'll be called rhythm equals culture. Uh, and because I have thought about this quite a bit and, and really the rhythms are what make up what you're doing. And so rhythms in our case, and in the cases of the companies that, uh, that I've run and do run and that I'm involved with, you know, rhythm starts with, um, a plan and then how you execute the plan is all of the rhythmic mostly meetings it's a lot of meetings that build up to make sure that you execute the plan so uh for example we do a morning huddle there's six of us we do a morning huddle every day we did it with a hundred people at print audit every single day at 8 a.m until 8 10 or whatever and then uh weekly we have a team meeting which is actually a lot of fun and the team meeting allows us to establish goals and set goals for the next or set goals and check on our goals and kpis and all those sorts of things um but and and there's just a a rhythm of them and what that builds up is that actually builds up what your culture is I, i do believe that culture should be intentional um and that you should be thinking about it and so i don't know about culture coming out organically. I like it to be, um, as a founder and a group of owners, you should kind of know what your values are and build your culture based off of that. And the best way to build culture, and people ask me this all the time, is then you establish rhythms that that are kind of sacrosanct, that you don't go against. And so if I'm not, hmm. like our, our huddle for Earthware is in four minutes, I'm not going to be there, but it's going to happen anyway. And so these sorts of things um, are what culture is. So I, I, I think that what I'm saying to answer your question is uh, culture needs to be intentional and thought about before and culture is built off of rhythms and that's how you do it. Hmm. I, I agree with you. I think the comment you made about, you know, culture, 
you, you shouldn't be organic. The problem is without being deliberate, it will be. Like someone's like, well, we don't really have a culture. I'm like, oh, I guarantee you do. It just might not be the one you intended or might not be the one that best serves your outcomes. <laughs> but you have one. Companies go, oh, we don't have a brand. I'm like, oh, yes, you do. Talk to your customers. You will have a brand, 100%. I guarantee it. It just not might be what you want them to say at the backyard uh, barbecue on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, and that that's absolutely true. And one of the main things that we always push for is that... Um, uh, and, and again, it comes around the people and this is a big piece for me, but it comes around the people. I always, uh, I had a guy that I worked for years ago, um, when I was, uh, on, on a brief stint in venture capital. And he, uh, told me that he's lost his best, uh, executives to their wives. So this was years ago and this was his comment. And I remember thinking, well, how do I flip that on its head? And so what we do is we want every spouse, every partner, everybody that's not in the company, but's connected to our people to say, I really wish I worked there. And, uh, so that was a, that's a, that's a, you know, that's a cultural thing. And so that was something that I had a deep desire. So we would invite them. We'd always invite the spouses out to all the parties and celebrations and let them know. And I love that kind of stuff. That's just, that's me. Hmm. I remind me, I was at an oil and gas, I think it was Tacka North when they first set up here in town years ago. And I was at their big Christmas event. It was just a, it was probably one of the craziest oil and gas, like everyone dressed up seventies theme, you know, 800, 900 people there. And the CEO went up and the first thing he did was spent the first 15 minutes of his talk, thanking the families and thank, and it stuck with me kind of like your comment of like, he's like, the only reason our teams can do what they do is because you're there for them. And like, and he made a huge, it was, it was the only part of the speech I remember. And that was probably 15 years ago, but went out of his way. And I was like, mm, yeah, there's some insights there. Kind of similar. That's stuck, that stuck with me ever since in, in terms of the role that, that, that when you think about it, I love your, how do we make them feel like they want to work there? Like they're missing out because they didn't get to come into tent. That's, that's awesome. Uh, people, obviously I appreciate your passion for it. Again, I've known you for years and that's, I remember that from when I first met you. So it's, it's you're definitely, it's consistent. So I, that I appreciate uh, over, over the years, people in leadership roles get jaded sometimes about their people. And it, it's unfortunate because you're right. It's like you're shooting yourself in your left foot because you're presenting your right foot. It's really a bad, it's a bad plan. Um, nuts and bolts. Um, leading up to what was the process? How long were you in kind of the due diligence or like thinking, just talking to us a little bit about the print audit and the sale process. Did this happen? Was this a quick three to six months and we can't, we, we can't buy you fast enough or was this years of courtship? It was a little bit of just kind of how it, how it unfolded. Um, so we had, uh, we had purchased a company, a uh, company here in town called NeoStream. And I wasn't, positive that I had done a great job of, of purchasing that company. Uh, certainly, as it turned out, it, it ended up very well, but uh, I just wasn't sure that I had done the due diligence and the, um, and the work needed properly to, to buy that company. And uh, so I'm, I'm in two business groups. One of them is called EO and the other one's called YPO. And YPO had a course that was a year long on how to sell your company or acquire other companies. And I really went into it thinking, uh, let's get some more acquisitions going. And uh, what happened was I learned in this course that there was probably quite a bit of value in the company that we had uh, in the entire company of print audit and started thinking very seriously about, we should probably sell this. And there were uh, there were a couple of major reasons for me 
Uh, one was 20 years is a long time and the plan had always been to sell it. So uh, it was never going to be a multi-generational uh, something that I was going to pass on to my kid. And so we went through a process, we hired an advisor. And I think the, <laughs> the number one thing that I, I would suggest to anybody is going through this course. I really did learn that you can't do this on your own, especially if you've got a company of size, you really, um, you're leaving a lot of money on the table if you don't have somebody that's done this before. And I kind of liken it to not many people sell their own house, but if they do, they're probably losing out a little bit on the, on, <laughs> on the opportunity. And, uh, all the realtors out there right now would feel very fortunate. You said that as, as the, as the, the home tech or the prop tech really starts to take, go on a rip right now. Yeah. And you know, even with travel and things like that, I always find that a travel agent does it better than me. It might be easy for me to do <laughs> it, but, uh, if for a major trip, I'm always going to hire a travel agent. So, um, I like what you said. Easy doesn't make it doesn't make it quality. That's a really good, right. those are good quantifiers. And and, <laughs> and we knew that we'd be playing to some fairly sophisticated buyers, and uh, so that's what we did. We hired a, we hired a company to uh, to do a process. That we actually ended up with two companies. One was in Canada. One was in Cincinnati in the U.S. Um, and I met them actually through this course that I was taking, um, and. And then it sort of rolled from there. What ended up happening with us, though, is we didn't go down the full path of putting the company up for sale and doing presentations to all of the okay. potential buyers. Uh, one company approached us while we were building the due diligence, uh, building the the data room and getting it ready for due diligence. And uh, they, they made us an offer right away. And um, it was... Okay. Uh, there was quite a bit of fighting, I got to say, between the two the two companies that we had set to sell us. That that sounds like a bit of a that sounds like we're that's that's a bit of a bidding war out on your front lawn kind yeah. of thing. Back to the house analogy. Well, and so you know that was pretty lucky, and 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 I think about it a little bit. Uh, so they fought back and forth. The Americans thought we could get a hundred times more. The Canadians are like, you're never going to see an offer like this again. And so uh, we went back and forth. I decided bird in hand because we knew who these people were. They owned the, they had just bought the second largest, uh, making us the third largest in our industry. And so they had just bought that okay. and uh, it, it was the proper way to go. But I, I got to say for the, for the selling piece, uh, we had built it up to be uh, a recurring revenue, uh, just a, a great little cash machine. And I'll tell you what we did was we remotely monitored printers around the world, like hundreds and hundreds of that. Well, it was millions of printers around the world and brought that information back to office equipment dealers. And so they knew when to uh, service the machine when it was running out of toner, when to sell toner, that sort of stuff. And um uh, and, and so it was, it turned into a fairly large, uh, data set that was pretty valuable to somebody else. Interesting. Kind of, you were the middleman between the, you know, so Rico, Xerox, Canon, these are your, these are your customers and, oh, interesting. And for them, it's not to, you don't buy the printer, you know, yeah, you buy the printer, but they sell you the ink kind of joke, you know, over yeah. the years. So you guys played right into that. <laughs> yeah, uh, we really did. And, um, uh, it, it was one of those things that as it grew, it just kept on growing on its own. We would come in some months and there would be another 10,000, 20,000 printers that it joined on that we had nothing to do with. We didn't 
touch them at all. It was our, our office equipment dealers or we had offices around the world around the world as well. Oh, so a huge part, a huge part because your partners are highly motivated because you, you had the keys to their maintenance agreements basically. Yeah, exactly. Well, we made their maintenance agreements better. There's just no doubt about that. And we made them unbelievably more efficient. It's kind of remember when uh, people used to come Hmm. by your house and they do the meter reading. Now all of that stuff is automated. It just goes right to their, right to the, to the data center. So we, we built that for printers. Is there a company that flies drones around that actually picks up that signal and kind of does the, someone was telling me about a company the other day where some of their parents had been a meter reader or had worked in that environment. And then I heard they're doing it with drones. I heard some crazy technology that I was like, really, I'm not, I've not noticed drones flying over doing that. But someone just told me about it the other day. And I thought it was interesting in terms of them being able to access data. And it was around meter reading for, anyway, sorry, sweet tangent. John, you're in the know. I figured you might know of this company. You're probably friends with the CEO. My guess is that it's probably cellular. Uh, that okay. that they're providing some sort of signal into now they might have it might be Wi-Fi that the signal's coming that they've got a, some sort of repeater on or uh, mm-hmm. receiver on telephone poles but I think we'd know if there were a bunch of drones flying around yeah yeah no they might I'm, I might I might I might grow suspicious <laughs> yeah well there's a great website about uh, birds birds are evil or birds are not real, I think is what it is. And it's this big spoof oh, okay. about how birds <laughs> in the 60s, government killed all birds and turned them into drones for government purposes. And all birds around the globe are actually I'm drones. assuming this website has direct, direct links to Flat Earth websites yeah, exactly. as well and some it's similar other websites. And uh, Chemtrails, yep. Chemtrails is the other one. <laughs> it's meant as a spoof. The problem with spoofs is somebody somewhere believes it, John. That's how these things get started. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's, uh, they've got me. Every time I see a bird, I'm pretty sure he's watching me. <laughs> you're, you're taking a second. Well, especially if it's a magpie or a crow, because you know they—they're you know. Uh, <laughs> I see my buddy. My buddy left his tank bag open on his motorcycle once, and this big raven came and literally like stole half of his stuff. It was amazing to watch. I was like, "What is going on over there?" And literally, he got robbed while he was in the bathroom. <laughs> so there you go, the birds. The birds. Yeah. <laughs> Our audience is like, "What the hell are these guys talking about?" <laughs> uh, so you got into a kind of like, and I don't want to oversimplify, but a kind of a perfect scenario in terms of. I love the couple of lessons I'm hearing from here. Like you put yourself out there like, okay, I need to learn more. I'm going to take this course. Uh, Lo and behold, in this course, you meet these other companies that are also there either to buy or sell. Like it's kind of like, it feels like, um, you know, boring money before you need it kind of mindset. Like you put yourself in environment to also run into other buyers and sellers who are having a similar mindset. That's what I love about groups like YPO, EO, tech. You tend to hang out with people that signed up for that similar drive. They want to improve. They want to get better. They want to learn. You hang out with groups like that. uh, Things happen, do happen by osmosis. And I want to, I don't want to minimize it because you still got to put yourself there, but it's amazing what comes out of those groups when you hang out with like-minded business owners. Yeah. (laughs) I, uh, uh, you're not overemphasizing. I would say that groups like EO and YPO have uh, have changed and built me up as a true business person. And uh, I, mm-hmm. I couldn't I couldn't have done it on my own. And the just the way that they're organized and the people that you can meet is um, uh, it, it's just such a huge leg up on running and managing and then, you know, selling or whatever you're going to do, including investing in businesses. It's an unbelievable uh, group of people that sort of are together for the same purpose globally. 
and anyone listening, I'm not going to ask the question because I already know the answer. Like, don't think you don't have time for it. You have to like include it, make time for it. As a busy business person, you're like, oh, how can I spend the time? The benefits are exponential financially and like qualitative and quantitative. For me, I've been in and out like since you and I met. That's how, you know, even that the amount of relationships, especially in a town like in Western Canada, because it is a big, small town and that makes it even smaller with, with the people that have, as my buddy jokes, someone in that group has stepped on the landmine you're about to step on and they can probably tell you to step in a different place. It's up to you to listen, but you know, everyone in that room has experienced similar issues maybe and, and at different times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, uh, there's been so many decisions that I've made based off of uh, the support of those groups that uh, were absolutely the right decision that I'm not sure I would have made on my own. <laughs> yeah, I, I can say there's a few decisions I would have made differently and I would have been incorrect yeah. for sure. I won't even, I'll be bold on that one. Uh, f- kind of final thoughts. You you did the sale, you stayed on for how long, right? You stayed on not that long, actually. November, again, I'm using your LinkedIn as my reference guide here. How long did you stay with the organization? Because I know that's a big one for a lot of founders and that, you know, oh, geez, you know, working for somebody, that was never what I signed up for. Or, or was that part of your plan right out of the way that you'd stay for a little bit of the transition and then exit? Yeah, my plan uh, from the beginning was to exit. Um, it's, uh, uh, as I said, I've had a couple of short stints in venture capital. And one of the things that was pretty clear is that a lot of the times in an acquisition, the entrepreneur doesn't fit, um, which may or may not have happened, but we engineered this, that, that I was going to be out as quickly as possible. And, um, and and the reason that we did that is so the, the company that we bought, uh, I actually got a great president out of that. So the guy that ran that company was a good friend of mine as well. And um, he ended up being a fabulous president. And so really after the strategy and execution and culture, which is what I was in charge of at that point, there wasn't, there wasn't a place for me after that. And that was, so it was engineered, but a lot of entrepreneurs do stay on. Um, I would say, I would say the only warning on that is earnouts are often very tough to make though. They do, happen, uh, I would uh, make sure that when you sell your company, it's not really based off of an earnout. Uh, the earnout should just be a bonus above what you wanted anyway. Because um, you yeah. don't always stay though. That's that. And some entrepreneurs end up staying in these companies forever because they love it. And so it's all over the place how you're going to do it. But I we engineered that I was out. And so curious, you touched on a little bit. Did you have an earnout? Was it was it this all cash deal and I'm done? Because obviously you you knew what your strategy was right from the get go. So did that allow you to work with them to construct a deal where there where there necessarily wasn't an earnout and it actually was a like what was it cash on close kind of situation? Yeah, hundred percent cash. Well, ninety percent cash on close, and then there was a ten uh, percent okay. hook over a year just to make sure that the accounts receivable and those sorts of things that were still coming in, yeah, and- uh, that we had earned were either paid out or. Um, were figured out. But um, yeah, cash on close. And, you know, as you said, it it was kind of the ideal situation, what everybody would hope for. Uh, the, not every deal is mm-hmm. the same. Do what's best for you and remember to do that uh, as you're going through, but take what you can get if that's your goal. And make sure you've got some advice. I heard you loud and clear. Don't don't think you have all the answers. And you're you, again, we joke at Claire Motive. You can't see the label when you're inside the bottle. After 20 years, you're firmly inside that bottle. <laughs> yeah, the um, uh, the company that uh, so when we sold, I think the the key piece, the one thing that I was not ready for personally that uh, my the team that I had brought on absolutely were it was the um, the due diligence. 
And so when we got into it, we got presented with a uh, due diligence spreadsheet that was about 2,500 lines on a spreadsheet. <laughs> and uh, without the two selling companies, the, the guys that, that uh, we had hired to help us, without them, they kept us on track. We were always ahead. They worked with my team in all the places that they need to. And it was, it was unbelievable, the work that they put in um, that – uh, it, it, with the absolute goal of maintaining the price. So what happens often in due diligence is they come back and they say, oh, well, we don't like this. We don't like that. We were way ahead of our buyer with our due diligence. We were sending them documents uh, that they didn't think we could produce that fast. Hmm. They ended so up- you could anticipate their moves. Yeah, like they that. ended <laughs> up being the slow party instead of us. And uh and so uh, we we did maintain the price all the way through, and that is kind of the goal of the selling company through due diligence is to uh, do your best to maintain that price because the buying company is going to spend a lot of time looking for anything to knock down mm-hmm. your original price, and and they will they're going to find stuff. Uh, so you have to be ready. Another thing about getting your company ready to sell, and this is kind of from the very beginning, is is if you've got skeletons, take care of them as soon as possible. Like just don't put your head in the ground. And I talk to people today that have fairly significant companies where we discover skeletons pretty quickly and they're like, oh, yeah, I'll deal with it. I'll deal with it. And I do it. Do it now. Get rid of whatever that is because uh, you never know when you're when it's going to rear its head. And the worst time would be when you're in the middle of a transaction, either buying or selling. When it gets on the negative side of your checkboxes. I really like your, the concept of, you know, because I've talked to a few people who have sold their companies, not used a lot of external, oh, I didn't want to spend the money. And it was a little bit of a dollars and cents. But what I'm hearing from your perspective is you guys stayed, you guys weren't back on your heels because you had the right advisors and you had the people that were helping you drive like, okay, they're going to ask for this and then they're going to see this. So then we're going to give them that. So you are, I like good, good old sports analogies, but you're on your toes kind of leaning in, not getting punch drunk in the corner as they're coming at you, trying to chew away your value every step of the way. So to me, sounds like they, the, whatever that cost was paid for, quote unquote, paid for. I, you know, I really think so. And I was quite convinced, uh, through that course that I took that this was, that you absolutely had to have somebody on there because you've got people that have done this literally dozens or hundreds of times before you got there. And so why wouldn't you tap that experience? Yes, it's expensive. But in my case, I think, uh, I think that we probably got a 20 to 30% lift in price just because I had those guys on. Uh, and so more than paid for what their cost was. And, um, and so, you know, that's my feeling. I, and, and the other piece was around that, and I said it before, around that due diligence and just the things that we weren't prepared for. Like I remember getting a call from um, the fellow down in Cincinnati at Arc Malibu. Uh, he called me and he said, hey, listen, their CEO is about to call you. And he's about to say that we're a bunch of asses. And can I swear on this thing? I don't know. Anyway. Uh, you absolutely can. <laughs> right. He's going to well, say we're- Well, the cat's out of the bag now, Yeah, John. he's going <laughs> to say we're a bunch of assholes and, uh, and that we're ruining the deal. And uh, here's what you say. And, and, and they're going to say we're walking away. Sure enough. And he said, tell them that you have full trust in them, but you'll talk to them 
talk to your advisors and say, hey, can you settle down a little bit and make sure that we're doing this stuff? And so he told me exactly what to say. The guy called me up and we were at the final hour and this was, you know, it was it was near the end of it. And uh, final hour near the end, I guess is exactly the same thing. But um, and uh, uh, and I was pretty nervous because I was pretty invested in this. I was already spending yeah, yeah. money and. Which is part of the trap, it's right? It's part like, of the trap. Point, and of like these guys, so, yeah, absolutely. This company that bought us buy about 10 to 12 companies a year. So they know what they're doing anyway. Okay. So they have a, they have a playbook. They have a playbook. <laughs> and sure enough, I get the call and uh, I said exactly. And, and I was, and I said to him, listen, I'm in the middle of a meeting. I can't really talk about this right now, but I absolutely will tell those guys, you know, cool it a little bit. And that was it. It worked like a charm. So that sort of stuff is kind of invaluable. Because uh, I suspect in his playbook, it was, uh, we're walking away or it's going to cost you a million, five million, yeah, 50 yeah, yeah, bucks. Yeah, yeah, like that, that, yeah. that was a million dollar phone call, whatever, whatever the number yeah. is. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an inconsequential phone call. It wasn't an inconsequential phone call. So, uh, you know, uh, having an advisor, I think is important and having good lawyers. We had excellent lawyers that helped us out. We had, my accountant was on it and all of these things are pretty important for a transaction that, you know, might change your life. It's all those things you learn in life. Don't, you know, when you get married, don't go to bed mad. When you start a business, make sure you have a good, advi- good advisors, accountants, lawyer. It's all true. It's all hundred percent true all the way through yeah. across the board. Yeah. So people tell you it anyway, as an entrepreneur, I learned the hard way, but this one I did. <laughs> Listen. Well, and again, like we're talking about being in these executive groups, if people are listening, it's like, you're not, you're not saying this just to hear your own voice. These are real experiences that you had. If we can, we, we, as other, as business owners listening to this or, or entrepreneurs or leaders of any form, it's what we choose to do with this information that makes the difference. Absolutely. So you said something to me when we chatted. We did our first our first date pre our reconnect phone call here a couple weeks ago. And you said, Yeah, yeah, you know, I sold my company, a little bit of foray into venture investing, realized not a good venture, not 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 a good angel, not a good investor, much better entrepreneur. We could do a whole nother podcast on that, but just because I I also know a lot of founders that have exited over the last couple of years and they're a little bit lost. They're like, Oh, I should I should be an investor. I should go here. I should there's a lot of shoulds, I think, sometimes in those points. But I love what you said. You're like, nah, no, I realized that wasn't my thing and I'm back to being an entrepreneur. Just touch on a little bit of that because I think that's something that does definitely, you know, people trip it, trip and fall over. <laughs> well, in my case, there is no doubt that I am a way better entrepreneur than investor. Um, if I'm going to, even stock-wise, if I'm going to invest in a stock, you're better to sell short. Um, so that <laughs> you're best to watch what I do mm-hmm. and sell short. Um, and it's because, you know, I'm, I'm market indicators with John. Yeah, I'm, I'm the nose of the dog of any bad investment. Uh, so, but on the, on the investment <laughs> side, the angel investment side and those sorts of things, um, what, what makes me a good entrepreneur is the, being able to see any idea and say, oh, we can make that work, whether it's true or not. And of course, I, I, we could have as much time talking about my failures as my successes. So, well, that's your, that's the reality distortion. Yeah, field, yeah right, exactly. Right <laughs> but um, we'll make it work. Uh, we can make this work. And so that makes it a very, very hard to be an investor. And I worked <laughs> in a uh, venture capital firm uh, a few years after university for a little while. And then uh, naturally, I'm sitting after selling the company and it was an all cash deal and thinking I should be an investor as well because everybody said that. And it was, it was very similar experience to my earlier days of looking at it, looking at deals and just getting too excited about them and not having good venture capital or investment investors. They've got their checklist and they know how to, they know how to say no 
And, um, whereas with me, um, we can make that work all the time. And so that's just, and that's an entrepreneurial thing. And I've seen it across the board. Uh, one of the, one of the fellows that, uh, helps sell, uh, our company, he actually gathered up all of the, all of the, uh, spouses and us for a meeting down in Denver. And he said, listen, here's what happens after you sell your company. He said, somewhere around 90% of the people that we work with lose all of it through two ways. Divorce. 90%. Okay. You have my, you have my attention. (laughs) Huge moment. And he, you know, he's like, he, he had the room quiet in a couple of seconds. He said, it's often through divorce. And so all of you spouses here, it's not going to turn out as well as you think if you're going to split, if you take this money and split it in half, because then uh, the only ones that win are lawyers. Mm -hmm. But he said, the other ones is that uh, entrepreneurs tend to uh, invest their money away and it disappears. And so they make big bets and, and the money disappears that way as well. And he, uh, so you, he used to call it a, a swim ashore money. He said, make sure that you take a chunk, put it away that it can never be touched. It's in fairly safe stuff. And it's enough to make sure that you can live somewhat because you may not get another chance. And most people don't for the same reason that you can't, that everybody doesn't sell their companies. Not everybody gets another kick at the can. And so uh, Mm. he was, he was very adamant about saving that, but it was an interesting fact that he said, entrepreneurs are not good investors and they never have been. Unless they're invested. 90% is, yeah, you definitely have my, you definitely have my attention. What an absolutely (laughs) amazing number. And you know, he's talking, he was talking about, they didn't sell companies. uh, We were a little bit smaller than their usual, but they didn't sell companies that were less than a hundred billion in value. And uh, he was talking about people that were losing hundreds of millions of dollars on big, big bets. And, and it seems impossible, but I totally get it because you think, you know, more just because you've done it once or, you are so passionate about something that somebody tells you that you keep on throwing good money after bad. And so it's a, it's a, it's an interesting lesson. Um, and it's been an interesting, I think it's a, a good one for me. So here I am starting another company with six people again. Now, I'm curious, uh, cause of course I talk a lot to venture capital people and angel investors on the show. Uh, I'm assuming this is being funded by you. This is, you're driving this forward. You're not going to market or is that part of the plan depending on how you scale? Just curious. Cause now that you're the entrepreneur, so you get to talk to the guys who sold their company to see if they want to invest in your company. Yeah. Um, so, uh, it, it's a, it's a much longer story, but I do have a bunch of friends and family involved in this. And, uh, that's kind of how we did it with, uh, how we've done it with the last few companies. And so, uh, the goal is, and mostly it's been, you know, just love money. So not a ton. Uh, but if it works, everybody makes some cash off of it. And, uh, if it doesn't, it's been love money, but, uh, I, other people's money does motivate me very, very seriously. Mm. Um, I don't like debt at all, uh, which is very weird in the world the way that it is now, but uh, I don't like debt at all. And I do feel like this is a very major debt that I have. And so a lot of my getting up in the morning and saying, because with a new venture, you're like, why did I do this? I could have just stayed kind of retired is I owe these people and I'm going to make this work. Mm. And the other thing is, of course, getting back to the core of this is I just hate stepping over garbage in the streets. That's single use containers. It drives me insane. And so I know that there, because I've seen it, I know there's something we can do about this. So I just want to 
Stop it. No more single use in Calgary. That would be the ideal single use takeout. And then, you know, you can get to grocery. Imagine all those clamshell containers like in the U S Oh, just, yes. It's, it's my wife comes home from Costco or the store and, you know, help her put away the, the, the groceries, that kind of thing. And it's like, you're just like filling the recycling bin. Like, oh, sorry, I say quote unquote, the recycling, bin. you're filling that gray container that allegedly goes there with all these things that are supposedly, but the amount of waste that you get just by bringing groceries into your house is substantial. It's substantial. You know, there's a great, and a, a, this is a bit of a rabbit hole, but there's a great company that started and they started with the blessing of some of the biggest companies in the world, biggest packaging companies in the world. So you've got uh, Nestle and, and companies like that. And it's called Loop. And Loop isn't in Calgary yet, but it's grocery reusable containers. And uh, okay. and so, you know, this is happening. But what's really funny is uh, 50, 100 years ago, you got, you got your milk in a reusable container. You got a lot of things in a reusable yeah, yeah. container. And so we can do it. Um, the real goal is to make sure that you don't ruin the convenience at all because that's what humans love convenience. We all love convenience. And so, and the, and the hundred years ago story, there's where some of the differences, there was an expectation of that level of convenience. You know, the things my grandmother did are what are cool today. She composted, she had a garden, like she was ahead of her time because that's just the way it was. Well, and the fact is that yeah. we're going to, a lot of that stuff we're going to have to do. But when you think about even 20 years ago, everything went in the garbage and now we are sorting via our, yeah. we're sorting food waste, we're sorting and everybody does it and don't really mind it. They've gotten used to it. So, uh, we, we think that this is going to be the future with, at least with takeout and God, I love takeout. Oh my God. I do it all the time. My wife and I, we, there is, uh, there is push the button and the magic yeah, shows up. just boom, about boom, boom, boom. every night. There's a conversation about cooker order. And, uh, so now we just order from all the places that are using earthware and we feel pretty good about it. Well, I think COVID has done one of two things. You've either kind of gone down the watch masterclass and become a better cook yep. or you use takeout more prevalently than you did before. It feels like there's, and there's a lot of middle for sure, messy middle, but uh, I definitely know a lot of friends are like, Oh, I'm cooking now, but uh, it's not again. So then the takeout has just become such an interesting. Yeah. And let's be honest, when we're all in lockdown, it was kind of a way to feel like you were engaging with the world, not just like staring at your own four walls for, for, for a period of time there. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Well, cooking, cooking and takeout are the two things that went through the roof. The, the food channel is the food and the weather channel apparently are the two most watched channels in North America. Interesting. I grew up on a farm in rural Quebec, so the weather was always on. That was just part yeah. of it. So one of my th goals in life was to not do something that completely relied on the weather, but yet it's the app I probably check the most frequently. On my phone. <laughs> uh, John, I, I love hearing your story. I love uh, one, your passion and kind of your honesty. And you know, one of the checklists that I've been reading lately, if you are wanting to be an angel is look for, look for, um, founders that have done it before successfully. I know that's one of the top things on the checklist. So thinking about it from your perspective and talking about, you know, bringing in that friends and family money to your, to your, to your, your venture and people being able to look at you and checking your box of the kind of, obviously the track record you've done and uh, kudos for you, man. I love just the self-awareness and knowing who you are and what to, and what to do with it. <laughs> I think that's, that should be one of the side benefits of, of kind of getting older and getting some experiences going, yeah, yeah, you know what? I suck at that, but I'm not bad at this. So I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay over here. A lot of, a lot of freedom in knowing what you're not great at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, 
<laughs> I guess I'm still learning every day. Uh, what I say today might be different tomorrow because I've made some huge mistake, but I do try and learn. <laughs> I, I, I reserve the right to learn something new today that I can do differently tomorrow. <laughs> That's right. Um, earthware, earthware.me, uh, tasty without the wasty. Uh, I'm going to be bold. I'm assuming this is go click sign up. This is as easy as, as, as I think it is from looking at your website right yep. here. Sign up, get your user code and then you can order however you order today. So through any of the delivery apps or, uh, take out the restaurants and I'm sure the delivery people, the delivery app people hate this, but the restaurants love takeout. So if you can pitch up and actually see them, they, they appreciate that a lot. Okay. That's awesome. John, I, I know you're super active in the community. What's the best way for someone to get a hold of you? If they want to connect or, you know, obviously EO or IPO or just want to reach out to you. What's the best LinkedIn email? What do you, what do you think? Yeah. Uh, email is the letter J at earthware.me. Nice. I love it. You didn't go first thing. You didn't have the first name, last name initials. You just went straight up. He will, the artist formerly known as John is now just Jay. Jay. Yeah. Uh, most of my emails, there's a J, just the J. And uh, I reserve the right for that because I'm the first person to get an email. <laughs> <laughs> John, fantastic! Great to reconnect with you, my friend. Kudos on the on the new on the new project, and uh, thanks for sharing your story, man. It was a great chat. I loved it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, good to see you again. 